Welcome to the podcast. I'm Carrie Compton. This interview has personal significance for me, and there's also a bit of serendipity that went into us bringing this to you today. In January of 2020, I took an impromptu trip home to Wisconsin to visit my grandmother who was in hospice. Instead of flying into my hometown of Green Bay, I wound up flying in about 30 minutes south into Appleton, a town in northeastern Wisconsin of about 75,000, located in Outagamie County. My father picked me up around lunchtime and we found our way to the closest restaurant for a famous Friday fish fry. We ended up in the tiny village of Combined Locks, the hometown of my guest today, Thomas Nelson, from the graduate class of 2004. My father and I fell into conversation with a regular sitting at the bar next to us. He told us a remarkable story. He had been a longtime employee of a nearby paper mill called Appleton Coated. The mill fell on hard times and everyone was laid off. For his part, he remembers thinking he had no idea what he would do next. His only skills were in working a paper mill. Then, after about six months, the mill was reopened and he was hired back for even more money. Wow, I remember saying, that never happens. Almost a year later, I received an email from Tom Nelson describing his book called One Day Stronger, how one local union saved a mill and what it means for American manufacturing. This was the inside account from Nelson, who is the Outagamie County Commissioner. He played an integral role in keeping the mill open. Nelson, who is among the Democratic candidates for the 2022 U.S. Senate primary, joins us today. He discusses how he did it, the importance of labor-focused governance, and what it's like for him as a Democrat in the Republican-heavy state of Wisconsin. Tom, thank you very much for joining me today. Great to be on. The premise of the story you tell in your book will sound familiar to anyone listening. A long-standing symbol of industry, in this case, a paper mill, fell on hard times, went into receivership, and was bought by a scrap metal dealer. From the worker standpoint, at this point, it must have felt like just another chapter in, in the long history of this country's deindustrialization. But instead of rolling with that, you, as the county executive, helped them to avoid the inevitable. Talk about how you did that. Well, um, it is, it's a long story, <laughs> which is why I wrote the book, but that's a great question. Unfortunately, it was a truncated timeline in less than 30 days later, which is very unusual. They had the auction and it went to a scrap dealer. The week before I happened to be having lunch with the state's top insolvency attorney, Tim Nixon, who tipped me off to this, said, they're probably going to go to an auction and be bought by a scrap dealer, but you can do something about this. 
you can object to the sale if it happens, if it goes to a scrap dealer because you have standing. You're the county executive. You have millions of dollars on the line for the local economy, and you have over 600 jobs on the line. You have standing to object. The day of the uh, auction, when the scrap dealer, industrial assets in California, um, prevail in the auction, I got a call. And they said, sale happened. It's going to a scrap dealer. And so I wrote the objection. And one of the subplots through the book is what was happening at the state level with the governor and the, the uh, Republican legislature with regard to the controversial Foxconn project, mm -hmm. which um, we were selected um, through Scott Walker, who was sort of good, good friend with Donald Trump. And it was going to go into Southeast Wisconsin. And the catch was that the state had to put three and a half billion dollars on the line in addition to other incentives. And the day that it was announced that Apple Dakota went into receivership, there was at the top of the fold of the Appleton Post Crescent, Appleton Dakota to go in receivership, but below the fold was assembly approves $3.5 billion for Foxconn on the hmm. very, very same day. And so we knew that these would be two different stories and they're probably going to have two different outcomes. And it seemed like Foxconn was going to take off. Mm -hmm. Because it had the full backing of the governor, the president of the United States, the Republican legislature, and then we had a little app, Appleton Code. And there wasn't an outcry from the, from, from, from the state. And that really set things at that point. You were the only elected official to be willing to get in there, roll up your sleeves and, and help with this fight. Um, mm -hmm. Why don't you think others cared about this. I mean, this seems like a perfect cause for politicians left, right, and center to get behind. Why were you right. the only one? I think a couple of things. People were resigning this faith that the conventional wisdom was paper was on the decline, and this was just one more mill. It was just a matter of time before it closed. And this in particular, because they made you know, computer paper, magazine paper, book paper. We all mm. know what direction that's going. The second thing, it really wasn't part of the governor's program. He was going to focus on Foxconn. Like that was his thing. He also knew at the same time that there were more and more businesses that had openings that were on the state jobs site. And a lot of them for, were from Northeast Wisconsin. And he just thought, well, paper job equals, um, you know, a cashier or something like that. I mean, but he didn't understand a couple of things, which is these are good paying jobs. These are generational jobs because you had dads, like sons and dads, grandfathers, sometimes on the same progression line mm. as they moved up from a low end job to the high end job. So these were good, good paying jobs. Plus that history it was around since 1889. I also think looking back, I think a lot of it had to do is this was in Adegami County. In Adegami County itself, we didn't get much attention at all. And so we had not gotten a lot of attention throughout uh, Scott Walker's tenure had been six, six, six and a half years and a local Republican legislature just went along with it. We're not helpful. Mm -hmm. And you saw that with Foxconn. So Racine, you know, received, you know, three and a half billion dollar potential outlay and we had nothing. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it, a lot of it had to do with politics. So there was politics, there was conventional wisdom, and there was people just weren't up for the fight. And I think those were really the big 
reasons. And I think if anybody ever comes back and says, you know, oh, you know, we tried helping and, and this and that. No, I mean, this was a very public process. Mm -hmm. They had, a, you know, a court drama where they went through every single phase of the auction and why it went to the scrap dealer. So this is very public. Plus there was a lot of coverage. I mean, next to the Green Bay Packers, the Appleton coded closure got a lot of attention. Yeah. At least in local media, we were on our own. I mean, even when we prevailed on the judge to give Appleton Coded a second chance, we were still on our own. Right. I mentioned to my brother, who is one of your constituents, by the way, he lives in Kankana. Um, he said, oh, I went to the reopening. Walker was there. I'm pretty sure he played a pretty big part in everything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have, I mean, the, the, the Schutzbach, I mean, he had nothing to do with this. And then he shows up a year later and takes credit. And again, it was a slap in the face because they must have given him the smallest award for an incentive for a manufacturing company like Appleton Coded, just over a million dollars. Mm. Let's put in context again, a million dollars versus $3.5 billion, mm -hmm. but they just didn't care. But he also wanted to have just some credit that he could talk about, mm -hmm. especially since he was three months away from reelection and he'd been down the polls. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's wrap up uh, how the Mills uh, saga sort of got resolved. You leveraged a, a relatively obscure legal strategy to object to the sale. You had a pretty understanding, uh, diligent judge who tried to find a way to make the scrap dealer continue to run the mill until a buyer could be found, correct? Well, in the courtroom drama, um, you can see very clearly that the judge was working very, very hard to try to find a solution. Normally, a receivership case is open and shut within 15 minutes. But over time, there was some case law that was developed that allowed someone withstanding to be able to object. We made a very, very good case. Um, we made a clear case that we had a new business model that mm -hmm. was going to be successful. So that was a big part. You know, if we if they try to run it as a mill, is it going to succeed? Mm -hmm. Or are we giving false hope to these 620 workers. Mm -hmm. They were on the precipice of changing from white grades to brown grades, packaging. Mm -hmm. And of course, Amazon was mm -hmm. going in one direction, which has just gone to the stratosphere because of COVID. I mean, right now, the vast majority of commerce, the way that Amazon works, what is Amazon? Amazon is a cardboard package mm -hmm. on your front stoop. Mm -hmm. Who's going to make who's going to make the cardboard mm -hmm. Appleton coated Green mm -hmm. Bay packaging. So the Tommy was perfect to show they had proof of concept that they could apply this brand new uh, business model and product. Okay, so but what happened with the judge, mm -hmm. there was still room for the scrap dealer to run up the clock because the judge was going to give 90 days, three months, mm -hmm. the benefit of the doubt for this to work. Mm -hmm. The scrap dealer could easily have run out the clock. Mm -hmm. He could easily have not given the resources to the mill workers and the owner managers mm -hmm. the time to do that and say, all right, and then scrap it. But there was a relationship 
with the acting president who saw that business model and kind of ran interference between Steve Mattis, who was the owner of industrial assets, who was just pissed off that he had to go through this anyhow. His sure. job was to go in, scrap it, take the money and run. He wasn't running something. Sure. And so all these ha- things happened. They had the first machine went on, the second machine went on, and the third machine went on, which is the capacity for Appleton Coded. All of that was taken care of by the end of March. And by the end of March, the union even had a contract. And part of the contract had a profit sharing provision. And by, I think, quarter two or quarter three, profit sharing was kicking in, Mm. which meant what? They were already earning a profit. Mm -hmm. March or April, they're earning a profit. And that was less than a year after it went into receivership. So it's only gone in one direction. Um, It's alive and well. They only brought back half of the workforce, unfortunately, but of course, 300 is greater than zero and they're still hiring. Mm. And they sold the mill in 2019. So they only had the mill for two and a half years. They sold it. And by some estimates, they cleared like 70 or $80 million. They bought it for about $20 million and they sold it in the low nine figures, over a hundred million dollars. Wow. I mean, how fair is this? I mean, you have this and, you know, you have this social contract, the social contract, one of the social contracts is you, you, you take a high risk, you get a high reward. Mm-hmm. They took a high risk by putting this money in, arguing this case, time, money, resources, trying to keep hope for, for the workers. And how much of that sale did they get? Nothing. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't for the steel workers convincing a judge, not industrial assets, that this thing can work. He will never have made $80 million. It's patently unfair that the people that positioned them to clear $80 million did not get a nickel of it. And that is the main argument for why we should move to a tripartite model of labor, local business, local government coming together and saving those jobs and keeping the economy alive and well. And then getting a piece of the pie if it becomes profitable, Mm -hmm. which it did in the Appleton coding. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about Foxconn. Where did it come from? What did it entail? What has it become after all these Mm -hmm. years? Well, I mean, in one word, it came down to politics. You know, it happened in 2017, which was a year before the election year, and Scott Walker was up for re-election. He was going to have a really tough re-election. Now, he ran against Donald Trump in the primary, but that campaign lasted like, I don't know, hot minutes, 70 days, whatever it was. And they were selected. We were selected as this is the site where Foxconn was going to have the base for their North American operations. This is a big, big, big company. I think their revenue is like a trillion dollars. It's mm. just I mean, wow. And so they were able to land this. Um, It had a lot to do with politics because it was not only was it in Wisconsin, but it was also in Paul Ryan's congressional district, speaker Ah. of the Congress. And it was actually, if you drop a pin, it was also in the middle of the speaker of the state assemblies district. Ah. And then Ryan's previous who was the RNC chairman, was from Kenosha, it was, it was next door. So, I mean, this was not a coincidence. This was politics. And that's, that's why. 
And Walker was able to put, was willing to put three and a half billion dollars on the line, which of course went up to four billion. Mm-hmm. What has it become? Yeah, I mean, it's a shadow of its former self. Governor Evers was able to knock down the price tag to, I think, 2.2 or $2.3 billion. So he renegotiated the contract. And that was a huge concern, is that it wasn't a piece of legislation only. It was a contract. And whether it's Republican Mm. administration, Democratic Mm. administration, the state, because it's a contract, was going to be on the hook. But because Foxconn failed so miserably Mm -hmm. and because they weren't meeting these benchmarks, because they weren't even close to meeting their their promises, they really had no choice but to come to the table and hammer out an option. Um, So so the contract, as as it stands right now, of course, is a lot better than Mm -hmm. what it was negotiated under uh, Scott Walker. Um, so that's where things stand now. But, but you know, I mean, I mean it continues to be um, a blemish mm. on our state's reputation. Mm. And because it's, it's an example of wasted state resources, mm. wasted attention, and also, you know, exhibit A of how not to do economic development. The problem with economic development, I say, you know, in scare quotes, because it really isn't the problem we have in the country is corporations um, uh, pit states and cities uh, against one another to extract as many concessions in the way of tax dollars, tax credits, and so forth. And it's mm. a race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. And there were uh, there were uh, other sites besides Wisconsin. I'm not sure how real of an option it was. This I think at the time it was the largest state subsidy package mm-hmm. in. The I think. I mean, it was a huge, huge amount. And we went for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now the administration that drove that is long gone. Mm-hmm. We are dealing with the ramifications of that of that deal. How many people has it come to employ? I think it's about, I think it's about 300. I mean, if that. And they had promised 10,000. Yes. I mean, oh. it's the local state representative, Greta Neubauer. She had told me that, you know what, Foxconn is really not that super popular we're seeing. And she said a lot of the workers there are from elsewhere. Mm. Part of that deal was also to hire locally. And mm-hmm. now most of them, a lot of those workers are not from the area. And this goes back, and this was just laughable. They're, they're, they're inking the Foxconn deal. And they're saying it's going to bring 10,000 jobs to Wisconsin. They're going to be Wisconsin jobs. What does he do? He spends like $7 million on an advertising campaign in Chicago to get Chicagoans to come to Wisconsin and work either at Foxconn or wherever it might be. $7 million was, was spent. I mean, you know, if this was a story in some fiction book, we'd be laughing and laughing and laughing but this was real wow we had to deal with this and yeah. it was just not a consistent story <laughs> it was just oh i mean the hits just kept coming also in the backdrop of of this time period was the corporate tax cuts that were approved on the federal level Good, talk yeah. about how you saw that play out with a different paper manufacturer uh, kimberly clark which has a right. big stake in wisconsin 
So yeah, and this is the birth. This is the birthplace of Kimberly Clark. In fact, the Kimberly brothers started one of the first mills in um, one of the first mills locally, and they originally came here because um, Wisconsin was a wheat state. And so, what would become the paper mills? A lot of them were flour mills, hmm. but the skill set for flour mills and paper mill were very similar. So we hmm. had this built-in workforce to do this, and the Kimberleys came to the area for that purpose, but stayed to start and run paper mills. And there was a lot of innovation that came from that company, which is still here, although they moved the headquarters to Dallas back in 1985. But Kimberly Clark was a very, very innovative company. They were the one um, that developed uh, cellulose cotton, which was used for dressing during World War One, And... Um, they had decided, okay, we're moving these two plants. We're going to shut them down and go someplace else, which is a huge slap in the face because this is home. They were leaving their hometown. Mm-hmm. And they had said, you know, don't give us an incentive package. This is a business sent. This is a business decision. We're leaving. And so Walker had to do something now. And they said, okay, let's do Foxconn for Kimberly Clark. And so they're digging an even deeper hole because Foxconn at this time, people are increasingly skeptical that this is going to work out. Mm-hmm. And branding, you know, calling this another Fox, do you really think that you're going to get much support from the legislature? Yeah. Of course not, especially since he had promised yeah. that there would not be another Foxconn-like legislation. And there they are. Few months later, passing Foxconn for Kimberly Clark, that got to the state senate, that stalled out, and again Walker sat down, hammered out a contract, and you know kept it going. So, okay, that's good. Um, but there also was state subsidy that that went along. That was, of course, a lot smaller than Foxconn. And another thing too, though, is um, the workers made concessions. So the workers at Appleton coded, they used their resources to object and kept it going. And in the Kimberly Clark example, they used um, concession, but the final product, the final contract did not have those same terms. The concessions that the workers made at the beginning during Foxconn for Kimberly Clark stayed the same mm. and the state com- commitment went down. But about mm. the time February, uh, February of 2018. So this was like two weeks after the announcement that they were going to close the Henry Street and Cold Spring facilities. Um, sure enough, you know, we find out that they gave like a half a billion dollars in stock buybacks to shareholders. And the only way that they were able to do that, the overall restructuring was from the Trump tax cuts. Mm-hmm. So again, the hits just kept coming and coming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to talk about Wisconsin politics. Today, Wisconsin has a split government, Republicans in the legislature and a Democratic governor. It is also got a uh, highly gerrymandered legislative map. Talk about that. That also works in tandem with a restrictive voter ID law as well. Yes, yes, yes. And so, yeah, that's a great question. It really also puts this all in context with respect to the decision makers at the state level. Um, And you're right. The state is split, a purple state, but not really. 
Mm-hmm. Statewide elections, they can decide at plus or minus 30 or 40,000 votes, one or two percentage points, tops. Yet in the legislature, you have almost super majorities of Republicans. You have only two, you have almost two thirds in the state assembly and you have almost two thirds in the state Senate. In fact, one of the biggest campaigns in 2020 was to save the veto. So they wanted to stop the Republicans from getting a supermajority. Mm-hmm. And that has everything to do with gerrymandering. Wisconsin is one of the most severely gerrymandered states in the country. And the results speak for themselves. And then you had, um, and along with that, you also have these very restrictive voting access laws. It's really bad in Wisconsin. Uh, Governor Evers has done a terrific job considering everything he's had to deal with. He has been able to have his vetoes sustained. He has had to, the Republican legislature has fought him at every single turn during COVID. I mean, you know, the number, uh, the spread of the virus deaths that they are responsible for because they kept on challenging the governor's orders, the health secretary's orders. They're just trying to protect the health, the safety and the lives of their constituents. They struck down the mask order a couple Mm. of weeks ago. Um, Adegimi County has a mask order in place for one of the handful Mm. of counties that do so because we take COVID Mm -hmm. seriously. How do you feel? as a Democrat in Wisconsin today? I I feel that we're, you know, we are behind enemy lines is how you feel. I mean, you're going up against a lot of political inertia from the Republican Party. I mean, they have mastered legislative politics and it's very, very, very difficult to go up and win. It's pretty rare that that happens. So I'm running for the U.S. Senate, and uh, thankfully they cannot gerrymander or redistrict yeah. the you know redistrict right. states. Right. So we at least have you know have you know have a shot at that. Uh, but it's very difficult. We don't have a lot of elected Democratic legislators. Um, we don't have a deep bench, so we don't have a lot of people at the ready to run for higher office. We also don't have a lot of staff or a lot of know-how institutional um, knowledge left in the Capitol because they've been in charge now mm. for 10 years. Um, so you're going up against some pretty well-funded and well-oiled machinery. How do you stay motivated? Well, um, I think the way that you stay motivated is, is to understand that the office that you hold, what you're trying to do for the people you represent, um, it's Mm. not about you. It is not about Mm -hmm. you. It is about, in my case, the people of Adegini County, things that I can do to make this a safe, a healthy, and productive Mm -hmm. community, providing good paying jobs, having a high quality Mm -hmm. of life. And not a day day goes back where you you ask yourself, you know, what is keeping me motivated? Why am I staying in this position? It's because the people that you represent and the higher ideals, the larger Mm -hmm. goals that you set forth to accomplish when you first met the seat. You're running for uh, Ron Johnson's U.S. Senate seat now. What would a Wisconsin look like under leadership of you and Tammy Baldwin as sitting senators, what would be some of your priorities? You know, Ron Johnson had championed a very cynical economic agenda. 
he championed outsourcing. I mean, incredibly, he said outsourcing is Mm -hmm. a good thing. Um, He talked about creative destruction, that that was a good thing too. People losing jobs, good paying jobs, that that was a good thing. Um, But I think Wisconsin is in a unique position. A senator from Wisconsin is in a unique position to help us return to our progressive Mm. roots. And one thing I'm in particularly uh, interested is, not surprising, is the labor movement. And I've seen firsthand the potential that a revitalized labor movement has with respect not just for good paying jobs and as they affect union jobs, but also communities and how you can harness the resources um, of the labor movement to improve the lives in all Mm -hmm. communities. And so that's going to be a top, top priority of mine. I think um, restructuring the tax code, which you see President Biden doing, um, a Green New Deal, which I'm a very big supporter of, Wisconsin, which is home to the modern day environmental movement, Taylor Nelson, and also being one of the top manufacturing states and one of, you know, and, um, you know, still a strong union, union state with, um, with, with a good culture, with, with a very strong culture. I think that that is something that's going to have a positive impact on people in Wisconsin, but also around the country. And a side benefit of that is to, you know, our reputation of being a progressive state. Um, it, it, it would be diametrically opposite to the kind of leadership you're getting from Senator Johnson right now. I mean, my, my, my calling card has been economics. My dad, a Lutheran pastor, always told me, like, look, or if you've missed the economic argument, you've missed the debate altogether. So what I try to do, and I've knocked on 70,000 doors, and so I've had this, I had this rolling focus group, and part of it is because Democrats don't, don't articulate this message well. Democrats are challenged with trying to articulate a very complex job because we're the ones that believe, yeah, the public sector, you know, is important and part of the policies that empower unions, that ensure that people get their fair share is a result of progressive laws, the state law, and also at the state level and also the federal level. So the Republican, by by comparison, the Republican uh, message is, you know, lower taxes, less government. And what are Democrats doing anyhow? They, they spend money, they're obsessed with this social issue, you know, gay marriage, and you know, that's just not my thing. And uh, they're gonna take away my guns. And even though I don't see that issue as, as pronounced as it once was, we've not been able to get in there and have a coherent message or be able to point to concrete solutions. And now we have a really good, um, a really good opportunity with the round of stimulus. This, this what was it, the American Families Act um, that not a single Republican signed up. So if this thing works out well, they're not going to be able to take credit. And we can say this is a democratic difference. Thank you so much for joining me, Tom. Good to be on. This is good. I enjoyed it. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much for listening to this month's podcast. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please go to paw.princeton.edu or subscribe on Apple iTunes. Till next time.